Bayview, May 5th. 1886. In the midst of a nationwide worker strike demanding improved conditions, tensions were high on Milwaukee's south side. A militia was stationed outside the Bayview Rolling Mills, the last workplace in the entire city. The strikers had yet to shut down. As approximately 3,000 strikers marched onto the mill's grounds, the militia was awaiting their advance with guns drawn. What happened next would end the lives of at least nine people, be debated for decades, and would begin a political revolution, the effects of which are still realized yet today. It's the deadliest labor incident in our state's history. The Bay View Massacre. Welcome to Badger Bazaar. A murder investigation would lead police to the farmhouse of Ed Bean. Mass murder at Frank Lloyd Wright's Spring Green Estate, Taliesin. Now authorities believe the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, Thank you, everybody, for tuning in to this episode 27 of Badger Bazaar. I am your host, Scott Whitman, along with me, your other host, Mickey Sanders. That's how you doing, me. Mickey? I'm pretty good. How are you doing? Excellent, man. So we just got back, well, it's been about a week ago now, from the mighty summer wind. Craig Naring and the Fox Valley Ghost Hunters allowed us to come up there for what might be the very last, as we've been talking about the last few episodes, the last public uh investigation kind of group uh investigation ever maybe because potentially yeah the the land is for sale um and we don't know what's going to be going on with the mansion after that and you guys even talked about buying it yourself not realistically mostly tongue-in-cheek but that'd be cool. yeah i wouldn't uh making a b&b out of it well i didn't <laughs> one can dream i guess right. but uh you just got to win the lottery. It's not a lot to ask. Yeah, it's it's on uh, pristine uh, lakefront property up in Vilas County. So uh, it's certainly available if you're looking for waterfront property up in Vilas County, which... Uh, and there's, uh, you know, it's got a haunting background. With a, with a great history to it, uh, right. And, two chimneys uh, still there if you want to use those right? too. So you got to buy the land and then you got to pay to uh, excavate it and get all that stuff out of there, I imagine, uh, and then build whatever you're going to build on it. So it's currently for sale now for three hundred grand. That's pretty much just the starting spot until you uh, you yeah. put everything else in it to right. build and get out, uh, get out what you're going to take out and then build what you want. So and you, I mean, because it's a steep downhill to the to the water from the house. It is. It's not as steep actually as what I thought it was when we got there, though. But you, you might you, have to fill in stuff. Sure, and cut sure, down yeah. trees for sure. Yeah. You least. you can, you know, and the neighbor has a dock. 
You know, it's it's no, not that. Just use theirs. Right. right. <laughs> we'll see what happens with Summer Wind. We will be coming back in a couple of weeks with a follow-up episode for that, talking about our time there, our time on uh, the property, and some of the investigation that we did, and some of the challenges that you have, too, when you're doing a group uh, investigation like that with people you don't know. It's you know, it's it's a great social event. We had a blast. It was fun. You know, but when in regards to investigation, although we got some really, really good stuff that we'll talk about, um, in terms of audio evidence, when you're trying to get that, that's a little more difficult when you have a number of people on the lot. So well, even even with people you do know, it, the more people involved, the more complicated it's going to be. But especially with the guides in this particular case, they have their own way of doing things, and it's not necessarily how you guys do it. So it's you know you got to find a happy medium or whatever. And being being no, no pun intended, just being. <laughs> Just being outside as well, you have to deal with the elements. You right, know, there's raining. quite a bit of elements out there. Yeah. You know, there's there's bugs. <laughs> there's you know, there's raindrops. <laughs> so um, there were challenges, but it was uh, I wouldn't give it back for the world. I had a great time up oh, there. Just to be there was just cool. Being on the property, and we're not all that sweet, so the rain didn't really kill us that much. No, and it would. I mean, it wasn't a lot of rain. It, no, it was just it sprinkled for a little bit. The mosquitoes but, were not um, the funnest, but yeah. So uh, again, we'll we'll be back in a few weeks talking about our trip to Summer Wind with uh, Craig Nering and Fox Valley Ghost Hunters, um, which was a great time. We'll also be seeing Craig again in a couple of, uh, well, about two months now, at the uh, Great Lakes Paranormal Conference in Glen Beulah at the old uh, Glen Beulah School, the haunted Glen Beulah School. Lots of people are going to be there in the paranormal pop culture world. Uh, Dave Schrader, Adam Berry, Jason Hawes, Jeff Belanger, Mike Huberty. These are all names that people know who are uh, in that world, if you're interested in going, tickets are still available. Um, you can learn more at www.greatlakesparanormalconference.com. End of September, September 22nd, 23rd, 24th, and it will be uh, quite the event. It's, it's Again, it's the first ever Great Lakes Paranormal Conference, and uh, it has quite an impressive list of speakers for being a first ever so if nothing else you get to see our shiny faces in person heck yeah mickey and i Good are gonna be to there you. mickey i and jim are gonna be there and vicky's even saying maybe she'll show up a day or two so just out of pity uh, we need a pretty face to add to the group so. we gotta have a face of the podcast and it can't be either one of us so <laughs> i guess it's or or jim i'm, I'm sure i'm sure jim no offense mind to jim, but yeah. <laughs> you know if we can have it be vicky all the more good for us i guess so we'll see what happens with that but again september 22nd 23rd 24th come out and see mickey and i at the great lakes paranormal conference uh in glen beulah really looking forward to that a couple of updates we have here on some stories that we're following wisconsin woman's killing dismemberment trial to begin Monday. This Taylor Shabizness. This is our good friend Taylor Shabizness. I can never forget that name. It just rolls off my tongue. Her trial starts, uh, as we are recording this, her trial starts tomorrow on July 24th. And this is from just a little article I'll read here from the Toronto Sun. This is an international story. A lot of people are following this from the Toronto Sun. The trial of a woman charged with killing and dismembering a Green Bay, Wisconsin man last year is set to begin Monday after a judge found her fit to assist in her own defense. Sixteen jurors were selected Friday for the homicide trial of Taylor Shabizness, 25. Following the judge's ruling that the Green Bay woman was able to help in her defense, the Green Bay Press-Gazette reported four of the jurors will serve as alternates. Shabizness is charged with first-degree intentional homicide, mutilating a corpse, and third-degree sexual assault in the February 2022 killing of Shad Therian. Also I get the willies every time we 25. go through that. 
Authorities, <laughs> I'm sick. Authorities say Shabiznis strangled Therian at the Green Bay home he shared with his mother, sexually abused him, and dismembered his body, leaving parts of it throughout the house and in a vehicle. Since her arrest, Shabiznis has had not guilty pleas entered on her mm-hmm. behalf by the court and a plea of not guilty by reason of insanity entered by her former attorney. You see pictures of her. There's something lacking behind those eyes. There's some darkness and a whole lot of void going on, it looks like. Uh, she got high on meth, and she uh, called a friend over, and uh, they engaged in some activity, and it didn't uh, end up well for Mr. Shad Therian, who wound up uh, dismembered. In his mom's house where she had to walk in and see it. Right. So that trial starts tomorrow. We'll, of course, uh, keep following that and letting you know the uh, <laughs> the outcome of that, which is probably non-climactic. Yeah, I'm pretty right? sure we know what's going to happen. It's just whether she's insane or not. Another story here that we've been following the last few episodes, if you remember back in the springtime, human remains were found in Little Lake Butamore in Fox Crossing. And there was a lot of, whenever that happens... Uh, there's a lot of online chatter going on that it might be Lori Deppis, who went missing from Appleton 30 years ago, probably the most famous missing person case in Wisconsin, definitely up here in the Fox Cities. So anytime you have something like that occur, remains found, a body found, especially in the Fox Crossing area, which is not very often, um, you always hear, could it be Lori Deppis? Could it be Amber Wildey from Green Bay? We now have the answers to that. It is not Lori Deppis, which I think we, you know, we knew that even though the cops were, were being very uh, tight-lipped about it, you know, you just kind of knew if that was Lori Deppis, it would have been leaked out by now. Right. So, it would have been a much bigger and, deal. And we discussed that the last time we talked about it. So it says human remains found in Little Lake Butamore this spring have been identified as those of a Nina man reported missing since last year. The Winnebago County Sheriff's Office says DNA analysis determined the remains were those of Ju Lee, 37. Lee was last seen on February 4th, 2022 in Nina. The sheriffs did not indicate how Lee died or how his body ended up in the water. The remains were found the night of April 27th in a marshy area in Fox Crossing. At the time, sheriff's officials said they believed the remains had been in the water for some time and the condition of the remains would delay identification. That is what led to the speculation that, you know, when they said that they'd been in there for some time, it could be Lori Deppis. What does some time mean? Well, right. that, that's meant about a year and a half, yeah, right. so Once not years. 30 years. So right. um, that is a, a conclusion to a story that we've been following. Obviously, we knew what the conclusion was. It was just a matter of who that person would be. So um, certainly not a happy ending. But um, His family must, at least, you know, whoever remains in it has some closure. Sure. Uh, the uh, Obviously, the Lori Deppis, Amber Wilde cases still go on. Now, in regards to that, I have to have a list, right? So Further down the rabbit hole. I came across this article here from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel from late last year, and it says six unsolved murder cases in Wisconsin you may not have heard of. In no particular order. In no particular it's order. Not a, it's not a twisted, <laughs> the best one that you've never heard of. There's not a top or a, well, this one's not as good as the other. No, <laughs> these are just a list of six cold cases that you may not have heard of, and and. I think most most of these I have, but I think I follow true crime pretty much right. more than that the more than the mean everybody more else person. So we're a little sicker. A lot of you may not, right? Although it is a big deal, as we discussed in a few episodes. So the first one here is Edward and Francis Sezaukis, Jalopy Jungle Gesundheit. Murders, 
Sheboygan in 1988. Edward and Francis Sizowskis <laughs> were found murdered on the morning of November 30th, 1988 in a barn at their scrap metal business, Eddie's Jalopy Jungle in the town of Sheboygan. Who would not shop there? Right. I'm saddened that I never did. I just want to go to a place called that. The couple, who were both in their 70s, lived in a house on the property. They were well-liked members of the community. Detectives with the Sheboygan County Sheriff's Department believed a robbery or burglary led to the murders. Detectives said they believed they know who killed the couple and were close to solving the crime years ago, but so far no one has been charged. So, you know, that's one of the frustrating things. When And this, you hear this kind of in the Lori Deppis case, too, where they think they might know who did this, but they they don't have the evidence to nab them. Which means you they know? can't say it out loud to anybody. Right. Not in the know. Next one on here, Stephen Capel, Oshkosh, 1965. Stephen Capel, a freshman at the Wisconsin State University at Oshkosh, disappeared from his dormitory on September 28, 1965. The 18-year-old's body was found three weeks later in Millers Bay in the city's Menominee Park. He had been severely beaten and his hands and legs bound with a 30-pound rock attached to his body. Jeez. The cause of death was left undetermined after coroner's inquest could not decide on whether it was homicide or suicide. I'm getting the willies like crazy. I'm starting to feel like I'm convulsing. So that was that's their uplifting stories we're talking about. Until Capel's family contacted the Oshkosh Police Department in 2014, detectives had been unfamiliar with the decades-old case. No files on the on the case existed at the police department. Detectives learned all they could through Capel's family and newspaper reports. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Like how can a unsolved murder case from Oshkosh from 1965? It's not like from the 20s or 30s. You know, right. 19 they don't. There's nothing that exists at the there police department. There was technology department. and newspapers and documentation was already well into existence. Since posting information on information on Capel's death, detectives have received tips about who they should talk to, but have not come up with any solid leads. Next one, Cecilia and Ann Cadigan, 1991, in Casco. Neighbors found elderly sisters Cecilia and Ann Cadigan of Casco fatally stabbed and brutally beaten with a pool cue in their farmhouse on the evening of November 16th, 1991. Anne, who was 90, was slumped over in her favorite chair. Cecilia, who turned 85 on the day of the murders, was found under an opened couch. They were beaten with a pool cue? Wow. Both of their purses were missing. So well, some, sure. somebody robbed these 90 and 85-year-old women. Beat them with a pool cue. After five years of following up on suspects, authorities charged Beth Labatt and Chuck Benoit, a couple who had committed a rash of burglaries and thefts across northeastern Wisconsin. Labatt was tried and convicted of the murders in 1997 on circumstantial evidence and prisoner's testimony, of course. Benoit was found not guilty at his 1998 trial. In 2005, after a push from the Wisconsin Innocence Project, it was discovered that Labatt's DNA was not found on any evidence from the crime scene, DNA that had been extracted from one of the recovered murder weapons and one of the victims was instead found to have come from an unknown male attacker. Next one, Amy Marie Yeary. You may remember that name remember if you follow name. our podcast. Yeah. This I is, follow a podcast. You do. I remember, yeah. Right. This is the Fond du Lac County Jane Doe, yeah. which we did an entire episode on. It says, on November 23, 2008, three hunters came across the badly decomposed body of a young woman partially submerged in a frozen creek in the town of Ashford in Fond du Lac County. She was dressed in a strapless black and pink top, pink bra, and blue jeans. She wore no shoes or socks. An autopsy determined she was between 15 and 21 years old. 
5 feet 1 inches tall and 120 pounds with light brown to dark blonde hair that was 12 to 14 inches in length. Her death was believed to be a homicide taking place between July and September. Three years after she was found, the unidentified woman was buried in a cemetery near Wapan. Investigators learned after her identification that Yuri was a victim of sex trafficking and had spent time in Chicago, Beloit, and Milwaukee. They still don't know any more than we all covered in that episode. They have, right? There's no further information um, than what we had a few months back when we covered uh, that episode. Right. Next one on here, Betty Rolf, 1988, Appleton. We've also talked about this Sounds familiar. homicide because this was solved due to DNA. This was solved just a few months ago. Uh, it says, Betty Rolf of Appleton left her work in the early morning of November 6, 1988, planning to walk the 10 blocks to her job at a banquet hall, which was Monarch Gardens in Appleton on Spencer Street. The 60-year-old woman, described by her family as having a heart of gold, never arrived. The next day after she was reported missing, a police officer walking the route she would take to work checked under an overpass and found her body wedged behind a concrete abutment. She had been beaten and sexually assaulted, dying of asphyxiation. It says no, no arrests have ever been made. That's now untrue as an arrest was made several months ago, and this case is now closed. So the Rolf family has closure. So that is no longer accurate on this list. Again, this came out late last year. Betty Rolf's murder was solved probably back in the springtime of so. this year. Yeah. A couple episodes ago is when we talked about it. Next one, Wayne Pratt, 1963, Oshkosh, Nina. On June 13th, 1963, Wayne Pratt was found murdered in a gas station he operated along Old Highway 41 between Nina and Oshkosh. He had been stabbed 53 times. No, no pun intended, but a little bit of overkill going on there. Pratt, 24, who had been watching TV in his nearby home that evening, noticed a white car pull up to the station and walked over to attend the customer. When he failed to return home, his wife went to the station where she found him lying face down in the storage room, partially covered with a blanket. She called the Winnebago County Sheriff's Department, which soon initiated a manhunt, but without success. Sheriff's officials have said there is strong evidence that all the stab wounds weren't inflicted during a single attack. The multiple attacks, along with the amount of violence and the blanket being placed over Pratt's body, suggest the attacker knew him. That's what I was just going to say. You don't, a stranger doesn't go that haywire. There had to be history between the victim and the person who did it. What, do you, what does it mean not all stab wounds weren't given during one attack? Like, like they stabbed him before? That's what I'm understanding. I don't understand that at all. Like, like it didn't all just happen in the one incident. Like how do they, I guess they would know just from... A little bit of healing having happened in between them, but detectives began weird. Detectives began re-examining the case in 2012, and since that time have conducted new interviews and submitted de- evidence for DNA analysis. Deterioration of evidence over the decades have made it harder to solve the murder, but detectives hope that advancing technology will eventually lead to a break in the case. In the meantime, they continue taking tips and following leads. Maybe even the, some of the stabbings happened, and then as the murderer was bringing the body around, the body came back to life or something, and he stabbed him some more, possibly? It might wouldn't, have that, wouldn't that be one attack, though? That would be the same attack. Well, but is it, like, if it if it 12 or 24 hours went on between them? I don't, I don't know. know. I don't know if they'd, they'd be so fresh. I don't know if they could tell that. Any so, it sounds like, to me, it sounds like they attacked him once, stabbed him a bunch right. of times, and did uh, it again. but he lived. Right. And like, and then on, a, on a, this other time, they came back and did it again. Right, because fifty-three, you'd be freaking tired if you did it all at once. 
Yeah. I know my, my arms are getting sore just thinking about it. And then the last one here, it says it's not even a, a case. It's, it's an editor's note. It says this story originally included the case of Janet Rash, a 20-year-old University of Wisconsin-Stevens Point student whose body was found in a field in 1984-2022. Portage County officials announced that they had determined through new evidence that Rash's death was accidental. This is the one we talked about, too, a few episodes ago, where it was a 30-year, 38-year homicide case that they have now said that she I would she actually died accidentally uh, on her own when she was burned up by a fire that she that started. She slept too close to right, her, right? Right. I remember that. That so, was a sad story too. As as we've talked about quite a bit on this show, a lot you know, there's already two off this list now, Betty Ralph uh, and Janet Rash that have been solved just since this came out late yeah. last year. Just all to do with the DNA so, technology. Right. Right. As as we've mentioned a lot, I think DNA uh, there will be a time, in my opinion. Um, probably not too far off in the future that all of these are going to be solved. Which is cool that somebody, whoever it is in each particular case, cares enough to go back and look at these cases that have maybe been forgotten about by most people. Even it, right, and even in one of the cases that we talked about, where the police the police didn't even know about it. They even have files right. on it, and they were actually um, told about it by the man's family. So right? Yeah, younger them. younger police officers might never have heard of stories that are fifty years old, but. The fact that somebody's willing to go back and, and rediscover these things is pretty cool. It's always, it's up to us, right? I mean, right. it's up to us. They, police stations have limited resources, right? Even if they do know about it, if it's 50 years ago, how many resources are they putting into it? Unless the family and people, community members, keep on it and keep these stories alive by telling these stories, be it on TV shows, podcasts like we're trying to do like whatever really it would be as Bizarre, whatever we can do to keep these stories alive and to one day give these families closure um well, just out of respect for the victims whether maybe they don't have family members left anymore but everybody was a person at one point and all lives matter so it's it's good to have closure whether it's for anybody else or not just people deserve the respect and death So the Bayview Massacre, or the Bayview Tragedy. Work strike tragedy, it gets called a few different things. Yeah, it's, I, I think a lot of people outside of Milwaukee area, or, you know, really people that don't, you know, they're not tuned into labor history and really who is. Right. You know. That's always the uh, most exciting subject. You may not know about this, right? But it, it had a massive impact massive impact on Wisconsin politics for decades and there therefore labor as we know it right still today because labor history as we know it uh, and the benefits that we have as employees today is because of what happened in Wisconsin largely because of what happened in Wisconsin from you know 1880s ish to the 1940s and onward uh, you know unemployment insurance workers comp things like this took hold nationally because of legislation pushed through in Wisconsin. Right, right. Yeah, as usual. At, always part of the front runners of changing things for, for the good or the bad. AFSCME, what is it, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees. It's one of the largest labor unions in the country. was founded here in Madison in 1932. Obviously, one of our most famous historical politicians, Robert La Follette, Fighting Bob, right, was put on the national scene and ran for president with his Wisconsin Idea platform, which was largely... Uh, labor-based. The actual study of labor itself began in Wisconsin when UW economist John Commons began documenting the history of labor at the turn of the century. So Wisconsin was was paramount in the advent of organized labor and workers' rights 
um, at the end of the 19th century and well into the 20th century. And why wouldn't we be, right? Sure. Agriculture, lumber, paper, they were colossal industries. All three of them centered right here in the Badger State, right? So where employees are needed most, it was only natural for those employees who eventually start demanding basic fairness in regards to working conditions. Well, this Bayview Rolling Mill that we'll be talking about was the first major heavy industry iron and steel production company in our region, at least. Right. So. You know, and that that's what it was about, you know, basic fairness and human decency. Today, it's about a lot of perks, right? When you're talking about negotiating with unions, it's about health insurance, First world problems. More money, vacation, right? <laughs> right? right. People in the 1880s and 1890s, they couldn't dream of a vacation. Oh, they were working what? 10, 12-hour days, right. six days a week, right? I mean, they were just fighting to go home and, and get adequate sleep at night. Not die, yeah. You know, and not get maimed or dismembered at work, literally. Right. Right. I mean, that's what they were dealing with. They were servants more than, and, you know, we gripe now about... The hours we have to put in, we have no idea what it was like back then. You know, the other thing that, that I want to mention is when, you know, we're, we're doing the research for this, when reading about it, and when it's commemorated today, it's usually because it's the world we live in now, right? <laughs> it's, it's usually just done so in a very black and white, left versus right perspective. Right? Very similar to what we just went through three years ago, right? With, the, with the, the, the nationwide protests that we went through where, you know, Democrats had to be very pro-protester and pro you know, rioter and conservatives were, no, no, we're more law and order based. And, you know, I get so incensed when I see these issues. These are important issues. And, you know, they have to be hijacked by one party or another, or the media has to throw you into a category. If you're if you're a Democrat, you have to be pro-union. Right. And if you're a Republican, you must hate unions. And it's just, it's so ridiculous. You know, why, whatever happened to finding a happy medium, it's just, it's us against them, no matter what we're talking about. I mean, it, because of this, much about what you read, um, on this subject and the research is biased. There's propaganda. There's information conveniently missing. There's little white lies. Oh, they just skew it in the direction of the argument they're trying to make. You know, and and I don't, you know, the the format that Mickey and I have for this podcast is, you know, we pick a subject, he he and I, we research it for two weeks and then we come back and we talk about it, which is this podcast, right? We, We talk about the things that we get out of this. And one of the things that I was most struck about doing the research was this, is how politicized something that happened 150 right. years ago now. has gotten. It's more, re- it's, the, it's the stuff written about it today. I, you know, I'm reading things from the 1960s and 70s, which was really, really well done, you know, and it's nuanced and it's telling you the facts of what happened and kind of the nuances of why people were doing the things that they were doing. And that's all gone when you read about what, ha- you know, today. It's, very, it's very pro-lefty or pro-righty right, in the way it's skewed. written. It's just... Um, it's, it's like the news. It's like watching the news. Right. It's this, this perspective that these were innocent protesters fighting for justice who were gunned down in cold blood by the evil, crony, capitalism-loving governor. It's a yeah. bit of a tall tale. I mean, you know? what it comes down to is both sides were at fault of and, course. and did the things wrong, but to act like the laborers were just innocent victims is and ridiculous. It's really sophomoric and lazy and disingenuous, and it's all over the place. That's the problem. Is you, you, you read about it, you look online, you watch YouTube, you watch videos on YouTube, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play one later because I want to, I want to give an example of what we're talking about here, about um, how biased the information out there is about a very important issue. It's just, it's not a lefty-righty issue. It's a human rights issue. It's a basic decency issue. And both sides had reasons for doing 
what they did. But this notion that if you're a Democrat, you have to love unions. If you're a Republican, you must hate unions. It's utterly... I mean, ASME was founded in 1932 to protect civil service employees when it was found out that um, the newly elected Democratic legislature was going to fire all of the Republican civil service employees in the state. <laughs> so now, how many Republicans hated unions then, right? Right. So this, it's just, it's not accurate. It's a much more nuanced issue than what the media wants us to believe. But when things are nuanced, that's not fun. Well, and right? often the, these politicians on either side aren't affected by unions. So if they don't care, a lot of times they're fighting for what, they're, like you said, what they're supposed to be fighting for. That doesn't mean they actually have any, you know, dog in the race, though. So how, how interested in the subject are they really? When you're talking about unions, when you're talking about workers' rights issues, it's got a political kind of connotation to it. And that started here. That started in Wisconsin. Workers' rights then didn't start here. Of course not. But using it as a political issue and really putting that on ballots did really start here. And that's a big deal. And that's something that we, you know, in Wisconsin should be proud of. And we'll get more into that into that later. But you, you really need to add context to what people write about this now. Don't just blindly believe everything you're seeing because, as everyone knows, even when you watch the news, there's always a, they're always coming at it from an angle. It's not just the straight facts anymore. So you, you kind of got to keep an open mind and hopefully make up your own opinion. When you get caught up in the, in the what side is Democrat, what side is Republican, you lose sight of the issue. It should you, be gray area, not you, so black and white. Like you lose say. sight of the people that mattered here, and that's the people, that's right. the workers. And the things that they were dealing with at this time, I mean, they were dealing with an atmosphere that we can't even understand. I mean, it's so otherworldly to us in 2023. And to understand what was going on, we have to add that context. So if you look at post-Civil War Wisconsin, post-Civil War America, really, 1868-ish, we're going back a little bit here. You know, that's a big, that's a time of, of transition in America. You know, reconstruction is going on, right? We have half a country to rebuild. Railroads are burgeoning. The first transcontinental railroad opened right about this time, and now there's railroads being built all over the place. Cities and urban areas are sprouting up, including our very own Milwaukee, right? Industrialization is about to take over America. That would eventually lead to the rise of guys like, um, what, Rockefeller, Vanderbilt, Carnegie. The Gilded Age was coming up. Edison was uh, perfecting his light bulb, making it efficient for uh, consumers to power up their houses using hydroelectricity, first used right here in Appleton, Wisconsin, mm -hmm. right? Mass transit was able to be used for the first time efficiently with electric trolleys, first used successfully right here. I read a book that mentioned that. In Appleton, that. Wisconsin. Oh, that was one of yours. So, you know, the world is about to change in a major way because the U.S. is about to become an industrial giant the world had never seen before. But we're not there quite yet. So by 1868, Milwaukee is really just starting to become industrialized. So smaller manufacturers had opened up shops here by then. Obviously, brewers, not the baseball team, but, uh, you know, breweries, construction, bricklayers. Paper was really just on the horizon, getting ready to blow up. It hadn't quite gotten there yet. But as Mickey said, there really wasn't any heavy industry yet in Milwaukee until a guy by the name of uh, Eber Brock Ward, a rich industrialist from Detroit, came to Milwaukee in 1868 and opened up the Milwaukee Iron Company, 
with 185 employees in Bayview. 1866 and 114 acres on Jones Island in Milwaukee. It was first built to re-roll railroad rails, but began manufacturing the new rails at some point not long after it was opened. Now at the time, Bayview was its own village, right? And then later on, it became annexed. I think 1887 or so became annexed by Milwaukee. And it became what it is today, which is pretty much a neighborhood within the city limits of Milwaukee. So a lot of people think Bayview is a suburb of Milwaukee. It's not. It's actually a, a neighborhood inside the city limits of Milwaukee. So Milwaukee Ironworks continued to grow, and in just a few years, that 185 employees that it started with swelled to over 1,000, and they were a major player in the national iron scene. They were a national leader in making rails for railroads, among other iron products. So Milwaukee Iron was a big deal now, now obviously commonly referred to as the Bayview Rolling Mills. By 1870, its first blast furnace, it was the largest of its kind in the entire nation, and that it began operation. The furnace was 66 feet high and 17 feet in diameter, produced 40 tons of pig iron per day by a process of smelting iron ore. Pig iron, as the term I just used, also known as crude iron, was an intermediate good used by the iron industry in production of steel. It made this mill the first major heavy industry iron steel production company in the region, as I said. The second furnace... By the way, by 1871, they had another furnace of the same size. So this place was huge, and it was a big deal in the entire country. A big deal. And now Bayview became a company town, pretty much the first company town in Wisconsin. I mean, where basically the town was built for the employees of the mill, right? Mm -hmm. Everything, the houses, churches, you know, Eberbrock Ward built the town. Streets were named for employees that worked at the mill. Streets that are still there today, Russell Ave, Potter Ave. Clement Ave. These are these were guys working at the mill back then, you know. And obviously, paper mills would do this a bit later on. Kimberly, Wisconsin, obviously, Whiting, Wisconsin. I mean, they, those were mill. Those those were company towns. The towns were built basically for employees of the paper mill. But in order to survive, you had to work, and jobs were limited. This is in the 1860s. If you're unskilled meaning you didn't specialize in anything. People look at that unskilled word and they think it's derogatory. It's not. It just means you weren't trained in anything right. specific. And you didn't right? necessarily have a college education or anything. You just didn't have any specific skills. or Right. You were skilled employees like a draftsman, a plumber, right. machinist, you know, guys that had were trained in things. Unskilled workers mean meant you just weren't, you didn't have that training. Doesn't mean you weren't capable. It just means you sure. didn't have it yet. Sure. So the, the problem was then, you know, in those days, there weren't, there weren't a lot of jobs for unskilled workers. I mean, there were no gas stations, right? There's no grocery stores. You, you couldn't, you had to go to an assembly line, right? So you needed some kind of manufacturing going on. So when these heavy industry mills opened up, these unskilled workers flocked to, to it. Sure. Right? And I mean, the, then the, like, even when you come out of college or high school, like they want job experience, but how do you get job experience if they don't give you a job? Right. So these are the problems that they obviously encountered. So you had to take what, what was available, and because of that, you were often at the mercy of the mill owners. Kind of a, almost servant, <laughs> that's the word I'll so, use, type conditions, you know. They you, not treated like people, really. You were often working 10, 12, sometimes 16-hour days. 130 degrees in there. Dog days of summer, and it's 130 degrees in the mill that you're working, there's, there's fire kilns and blast furnaces all over the place. Six days a week, and, and the pay, get this, I mean, things were different back then, obviously, but 90 cents to $1.15 per day. Obviously, the standard of living was lower, but right. well, it's not a lot of money. You, you know, you say things were different. That 90 cents a day or a dollar a day in 1868 is equivalent to about $2 an hour today. Right. 
So, so nothing. Right. You you weren't getting paid up to the standard of living, regardless of when it was. Skilled workers were making a lot more than that, obviously. Five to Five. six fifty per day. Which is still today. Per day. <laughs> right. Right. Again, working 10, 12 hours, that still equates to about $7 an hour today. And these people have families. They're not just single individuals. You were shaping metal, sledgehammers, 130 degrees. You got black soot all over your face. You're in there for 12 hours. Imagine this stuff, right? Well, and then like you say, the medical bills after this catches up to you after so many years of doing it, how are you going to pay for that? You don't have the money to do right. it. And there's no vacation. There's no <laughs> workers' comp. Oh, you lost a hand? Sorry. See right. you back here Monday? Right. Maybe we can weld a new one on. Now, obviously, as, as, as Mickey just said, the skilled workers were making 5 to $6 a day. That's about $7 an hour today. And those skilled workers were recruited and brought over from other, you know, Germany, Great Britain, a lot of these guys were brought over for. So they still weren't making a lot of money, but they were jobs. Skilled workers, just for the record, including, and these are terms you might not be familiar with, but iron puddlers, hammerers, shear operators, amongst others. So those are the kind of jobs that we're talking about are skilled employees. Because there weren't a lot of jobs, you were just grateful for any dollar you could make. Right. And if you were making $6 a day, God, living at, at least you could you could do something. Right. Now, many of these unskilled workers were mainly poor immigrants, obviously, mostly from Poland, who would fill these manufacturing positions. Obviously, Milwaukee is famously settled by Germans, but the large number of entry-level unskilled positions that opened up with these manufacturing positions led to an influx of uh, Polish immigrants who took these jobs and basically settled south side of Milwaukee. Still today, the south side of Milwaukee is very Polish in origin, including Bayview. Now, around this time, there was, because of these conditions that Mickey and I are talking about, there was a labor movement in America gaining steam. And it was a movement for the eight-hour workday. Think about it. again. That's something we don't with even no pay reduction. We don't even think about that today. Right, we take eight, it for granted. Right, seven to three thirty, nine to five, whatever it is. They had to fight to not work twelve or sixteen-hour right. days. So there was a number of strikes and, demonstra and demonstrations demanding eight-hour days in industrial cities across the country, and they did lead to some, you know, loose laws being passed in several states, but there were so many loopholes about them, and they nobody enforced anything if you didn't, uh, you know, go to an eight-hour workday. So they were meaningless. Right? Two of the unions that were formed around that area were the Central Labor Union, led by Socialist Paul Gratkow, and the Catholic Church's Knights, led by Robert Schilling. So the Knights of Labor, which Mickey just said, was the largest labor union in the country at the time. The Central labor union was the first labor federation in the country at the time. So this, these, these were not specific to Wisconsin. This, this was a, a nationwide issue being talked about, these demonstrations for the eight-hour workday. But mainly because of those two guys that, that Mickey just mentioned, Robert Schilling and, and Paul Grotko, they were centered in the Midwest, specifically Chicago and Milwaukee. Now, Schilling and Grotko were European socialists. Gratko was commonly referred to as an anarchist. He's still referred to that today. Uh, they were actually rival newspaper publishers, both publishing what would be thought of today as radical papers of the time in Milwaukee. And they were labor organizers. So Schilling in Milwaukee, as Mickey said, was the leader of the Knights of Labor. Gratko was leading the Central Labor Union. These are precursors of today's AFL-CIO. You know, so we don't know. Yeah, they merged. Years later, they would actually merge and become an even more powerful union. Right. So the, these, but at the time, the Central Labor Union and the Knights of Labor, with Schilling and Gracco, these were two heavy hitters 
in organized labor, both right here in Milwaukee. Now, Graco was from Germany, and he's run out of Germany because he's an anarchist. Sounds a bit like a German name, actually. Right. right? He's, he's, he's inciting riots. He's inciting uh, protests. And uh, he's not virtually run out. He was. I mean, he was going to be arrested, and likely not good things happened to him if he wouldn't have gotten out of there. And so he leaves Germany, and he goes to Chicago. And he became editor of, of the Chicago Workers' News, which was a radical paper in Chicago. And he ran that along with his editorial colleague at the paper, August Spees, who we'll be mentioning a little later. Now, that paper eventually moved more from a socialist perspective to an anarchist perspective, basically becoming a militant group promoting armed insurrection. Graco wasn't comfortable with that. So he was forced out of that position, and he was replaced solely by August Spies. So Graco just went north and came to Milwaukee and did the same thing in Milwaukee he did in Chicago. He started the Milwaukee Workers' News, right? And he promoted the same socialist agenda he did in Chicago. So although, you know, they're rivals in publishing, Graco and Robert Schilling worked together in organizing for workers' rights, specifically the eight-hour workday with no reduction in pay. And in this area, they were actually, as it was, they were trying to persuade the local government to adopt this eight-hour workday. Eventually, Milwaukee did. But as you'll learn, the, there was no penalty for the employees that didn't comply. Right. So the law was in place, but it wasn't being enforced. Now, again, this was a it was a national issue. It was kind of being centered. The the kind of tensions were in Chicago and Milwaukee because of those two guys, Schilling and Graco. But it was a national movement. And in its convention in Chicago in 1884, the Federation of Organized Trades and Labor Unions proclaimed that quote. Eight hours shall constitute a legal day's labor from and after May 1st, 1886, and that we recommend to labor organizations throughout this jurisdiction that they so direct their laws as to confirm to this resolution by the time named, unquote. By the time named means May 1st, 1886. And all workers not yet on that eight-hour system were expected to cease work in a nationwide strike until employer met demands. Now, again, this was proclaimed in 1884. So what they're saying is, all right, mill owners, employers throughout the country, you have two years to figure this Get out. things figured out, right. You have two years, and if you can't move to a more streamlined eight-hour day nationwide, not just Chicago or Milwaukee, but nationwide, you have two years to figure this out. And if you don't... That's a heck of a warning. Enough time. There's going to be consequences. This, right. A nationwide strike for all laborers and... Like you say, they tried to be fair. That This is our warning. We're going to walk out if you don't fix things in the next two years. So May 1st, 1886 comes. Guess what? <laughs> Not a lot of progress. Everything was great. <laughs> Everybody lived happily ever after. Not a lot of no. progress made. Um, that warning was pretty much... Totally ignored. Yeah. Yeah. Now, as Mickey said, in Milwaukee, they did adopt the eight-hour workday, but it, again, it wasn't enforced. So if you didn't if you didn't implement that, well, so what? There was no penalty. You know, so what, like it's just lip service, right. you know. So out of a couple hundred places targeted for the eight-hour workday in Milwaukee in two years, twenty-one implemented an eight-hour workday. Twenty-one out of two hundred and some. Right, in just this area. So they put their plan into action. So on May 1st, 1886, 
1,600 demonstrations went on in cities throughout the country, all over the nation. 1,600 demonstrations. Everyone went on strike throughout the nation. Not everybody, obviously. Now, for the most part, throughout the country, these were mainly peaceful demonstrations, right? There's no riots going on. At this point. You know, they're, they're protests and so forth, but throughout the nation, these were pretty tame. But as we said before, the nucleus of these were here in the Midwest, in Chicago, in Milwaukee. And the tensions here were not like they were other places. They were, again, because Schilling was here, and more specifically, Gratko was here, the tensions are higher. And the governor at the time, Jeremiah Rusk, was a little nervous about it. He couldn't, he's could understand the tensions are here. He understood who Paul Gratko was and what he had done in the past. And so he put the state militia on standby. He didn't call them out. He didn't say, come out here and crack some heads. He put them on standby and said, be ready because we don't have any idea what's going to happen, but things have gotten, and we'll talk about on May 3rd, what happened in Chicago's Haymarket Square. But they were aware of that and they were just getting ready for the bad things that might happen. Right. So he says, just, it has the potential to become something. Just be ready in case something does. So on May 2nd in Milwaukee, approximately 15,000 striking workers held a parade in Milwaukee, organized by the Central Labor Union. Parade. Obviously, they wanted to educate the public Floats of, of what the, Snoopy, sure, sure. Garfield. They wanted to educate the public that this this is going on and this is unacceptable, right? I mean, we're, we're working our asses off for 12-hour days, we can barely breathe. It's so hot in these places, and we're getting a buck a day. We need some help here. We, we need some different working conditions. And this parade was viewed by some 25,000 people with, that had a picnic afterwards at the Milwaukee Gardens where speakers spoke against these local employers. 25,000 people that's in 1886. I mean, people. that's like all of Milwaukee. Right. right? <laughs> so this was a big deal, and actually the journal, the Milwaukee Journal, said it was the biggest event in the city's history. This was a Still, major, major deal. No kidding. So and they, they marched, and they marched with banners saying things like, the workmen do not beg, they demand. Eight hours is our battle cry. You know, and they came with this slogan that's, you know, you still hear today when, when talking about this issue. What their slogan was, was eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. Pretty reasonable. Right. right? Makes I mean, sense. Certainly we're we're we all do. just people, for God's sake. So they worked the crowd into a frenzy, right? And there's 25,000 people there. And before long, everyone is chanting this theme. Eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what we will. And again, these are things that we take for granted in 2023. They had to fight like hell to not be dragged like dogs in these mills. May 3rd is when things started changing for the worse, really. This is when about 300 Polish workers began marching, going from business to business, trying to shut down the businesses that were still in operation. So on May 1st, a lot of people stopped working, shut a lot of the city of Milwaukee down. But obviously, people still had to work. There were some people, maybe they didn't agree with it, or they didn't care. They just needed that paycheck. You know, whatever it would be. That whole dollar a day, it was... It, it, was it, it meant a lot to them. You know, I mean, if you're slaving like these guys are for that dollar a day, that means you need that dollar a day, right? So they're, not everybody went on strike. There were obviously still people working, but the city, for the most part, was paralyzed. 
people were not working. So these 300 Polish workers began marching from business to business. And anybody that's working, any business that's still open, they're trying to shut down. I'm going to reference here an article written by Anna Pierce, which appeared in the Wisconsin Magazine of History in the fall of 2019. Right? So not, not long ago, a few years ago. It's a great magazine. As a researcher, I read the Wisconsin Magazine of History all the time. I refer to this publication often. Um, I read it quite a bit. This is what she says about May 3rd, 1886. She says, On May 3rd at about 11 a.m., a group of approximately 300 Polish immigrant workers began to go from company to company in Bayview, shutting them down. They threatened to use force to push employees into striking. These Polish immigrants carried clubs and some carried knives. No violence or injuries were reported. Interesting. These protests in support of the eight-hour workday were wildly successful. And by nightfall, all of the businesses in Bayview were closed, except for one, the Milwaukee Iron Company Rolling Mill, commonly known as the Bayview Rolling Mill. That factory stayed open because it had many skilled workers who were paid a reasonable salary and worked decent hours. The employees didn't see a reason to stop working to strike for something they had already been given. Let me read a part of this again. She says, They threatened to use force to push employees into striking. The immigrants carried clubs and some carried knives. No violence or injuries were reported. Is that not violence? Those sound like weapons. Usually you don't pat someone on the back with that stuff. So the, that's... the other thing she doesn't tell you is that, well, she says they were wildly successful. They're wildly successful because these immigrants going around to these businesses forcing people to stop working because if they didn't stop working, they were told that their house was going to be burned down while they're holding, nonviolently, of course, clubs and knives. Even if you just wanted to mind your own business and keep your nose to the grindstone and just do your own thing, you were threatened to the point where you might lose everything you did have. So you didn't have any choice but to join the strike. They're going to burn your house down. And they don't care if your family's in it or not. What right. are you going to do? Right. And this was wildly successful in Anna Pierce's... <laughs> nice choice of words. Right. So we're at a crowd now of about 1,500 or so protesters. This is what you remember. It started out with 300. They've been walking around, forcing people to stop work, threatening violence. Um, Even though it's peaceful. Right. And so now they're a crowd of 1,500 protesters. So shutting, they're shutting down the city. You know, forcing employees, even those who don't want to join them, to join them. They next went to the Reliance Mill, which is owned by Edward Alice, which was also an ironworks mill in Milwaukee. And there they were repelled by a fire hose. A fire hose. And there's, you know, there's stories that you can read where some of these guys are being lifted clear off the ground and blown 20 feet by this big stream of water. And that, that repelled them. They, they went back. They moved back from that mill, and they didn't actually get in that mill. But... The mayor was worried about them coming back and being violent. And so he asked Edward Alice to then close down. So Alice did that on the urging of the mayor, not because his employees left him, but because the mayor urged him to close to avoid any kind of violence that may come. And at this point, the first factory they marched to, the CM and STO car company, uh, they actually had put a special train aside for Governor Rusk's disposal so he could rush there, and they set him up in an office in the Plankinton Hotel. So he was actually on site at some point, He came to Milwaukee, right? Because he knew how big of a deal it was going to be coming. So now there's really only one more place to go, right? In the morning of May 4th, the protesters are on their way 
to Bayview. Now, Governor Russ can't just send out the National Guard, right? He he needs, which it's not even really a National Guard. If this is, you know, the National State Guard. State militia. It, yeah, it really didn't even exist yet. I mean, this was basically uh, a bunch of kind of organized like militias of local residents. basically, yeah. right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they didn't, they weren't soldiers. They didn't have any. Training. Uh, necess- right. I mean, some of them, they might have been like former Civil War guys, you know, they from 20 years ago or something. Right. But, but now they're just a group that band together. On their own, yeah. the 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 National Guard was was a bunch of of uh, civilians grouped, kind of kind of working at the behest of the government when they need them to to defend, right? So there there really wasn't any National Guard. There was a National Guard, but you know, Russ couldn't send any of these in until he's asked for by the by the sheriff and the mayor. Well, employers were asking him, and he refused. And he was refusing. He even right? said no because he didn't want it to get to that any before it even had to. Now. In an article also in the Wisconsin Magazine of History, the difference is this was taken from 1971, and this is written by a guy named Jerry Cooper. He writes a lot about, uh, he writes a a really well-done article, Um, and he's writing that, you know, on May 3rd, by 7 a.m., thousands of eight-hour-day men returned to the streets demanding that those at work lay down their tools and join the general strike. They forced men to quit work at several shops and factories while some 3,000 of them headed for the village of Bayview. Now we're up to 3,000. Started at 300. Now we're up to 3,000. In this area, I read that there's over 12,000 workers overall doing this stuff throughout the country. So upon their arrival at the mills, the crowd discovered that the rumors that skilled workers were on the job still at Bayview were true. The strikers, unable to enter the plant, began negotiations with plant officials and sent committees into the factory to urge workers to leave their jobs. The reported tenor and size of the, the crowd at Bayview and in Milwaukee streets convinced the mayor and the sheriff that their forces could not handle the impending disorders, and so then they made simultaneous requests to Governor Rusk for the National Guard. At 9 a.m., riot bells rang in Milwaukee, and members of the 4th Battalion reported to their armories, dressed for duty, and then left for Bayview. How creepy of a feeling would that be? You hear those bells in the background. Riot bells. Right. I'm getting a, I'm getting a chill up my spine just thinking about it, and I wasn't anywhere near involved, obviously. So Rusk is now told by the police that, that violence is likely, and if it does break out, that Milwaukee cannot handle it. They don't have the force to be able to beat back this crowd of 3,000 really pissed-off workers. So then Rusk mobilizes the National Guard. Also, Robert Schilling arrived. He understands what's going on. And he attempted to talk down the mob. In their native languages. Because like you said, a lot of these people were immigrants. And he's trying to speak to them in their native languages, but to no avail. Well, it, it kind of worked for his people, the, the people that he were leading of the, the Knights, one, the the knights of Labor. Him, right. right. So they were actually trying to attempt to negotiate with the mill. They had people meeting with Governor Rusk and asked him to call off the guard. When Rusk didn't do that, they effectively left the strike. So Robert Schilling made the decision that it wasn't worth the bloodshed to him that he knew was coming to do this. So he basically pulled his guys from the Knights of Labor out of the strike. 
so they left. But the Central Labor Union guys and Paul Grotko didn't. To the point I was making how he's speaking in their native language, reporters that were standing by, as obviously this is national news and, you know, they want to be involved or at least there for the story, they couldn't understand the language that was being spoken. So they actually started reporting that the group leaders were enticing the crowd trying to rile them up when, in fact, they were trying to, Schilling, at least, was trying to do the opposite. Schilling was. Gratko was not. Right. Gratko continued to rile up his people. And this is, now we're at about 2,000 workers remain because Schilling got his guys to leave. Now we're still at 2,000 workers standing out uh, outside the Bay the Bayview Mill, and Gratko is riling them up. And they're being followed by the police, just in case. So everyone's involved at this point. Now, Edward Alice, who we mentioned before, who owned the Reliance Mill and, and turned the water hoses on him, he wound up ad- adhering. He he uh, he wound up agreeing to the eight-hour day. And a pay increase. And it didn't matter. Right. They said, not until everybody gets it. Right. We're not stopping. So now yeah. it's kind of bloodthirsty, and, right? And what can he... Well, I mean, on one hand, they're trying to represent all laborers, but what can he do? He did, he, he did what they wanted... And yet they're still not coming back. So then it's like, okay, it's all out war. This again is from Jerry Cooper. Quote, when it became apparent to Governor Russ that the 4th Battalion would not be able to break the strike alone, he had adjutant General Chapman mobilize the entire 1st Regiment. This was done at 11 a.m. And by 5.30 in the afternoon, the entire unit was in the city. The Madison Governor's Guard arrived first, bringing a Gatling gun, which they set up at the Lighthouse Armory. Other companies of the first arrived throughout the rest of the afternoon. Chapman then strategically distributed the units around the city. He sent two companies to reinforce Major Tremor at Bayview. Tremor was the commanding officer of the militia at Bayview. Kept four companies at the armory as a reserve force and sent the remaining forces to guard the Alice Ironworks and the West Milwaukee Railroad car shops. This is a war zone, people. They have Gatling guns set out throughout the state. They have battalions all over the place. Right. A few, three, four or five different militia groups are there. At the, by nightfall, there was over 250 militiamen. Now, the night of the 4th, even with tensions being as high as they were, they're about to get even higher. This is when the Haymarket Square bombing happened in Chicago. Now, this is probably the most famous labor incident that's happened in our nation's history. These were labor riots in Chicago over the same issues, the eight-hour day. The same thing that's happening in Milwaukee is going on in Chicago right now. And they're all connected. Right. Right. Well, just a couple hundred miles away. Now, during this riot, a bomb was thrown into a crowd of police officers. Well, on May 3rd, Chicago police shot four workers to death. The night before. And then on May 4th, a bomb was dropped, as Scott said. So they they threw sticks of dynamite into a crowd of police, and they killed eight of them. So people on both sides are dying. Along with others. They killed eight police officers. They firebombed eight police officers. Three other people were killed, and dozens were injured. Who knows what. Right. Fingers missing, hands missing. Sure. God knows what. This happened on the night of the 4th. Because of this, eight labor activists in Chicago were arrested for this bombing. Four of them were eventually executed, including one August Spees, the former editorial colleague of Paul Grotko. The same Paul Grotko who now has his troops rallied in a frenzy in front of the Bayview Mill. So why do you think tensions are high? Gee, blood is being spilled like crazy now. Now, through the night, the militia was actually reinforced at Bayview because of this. 
because of the Haymarket Square incident in Chicago, which everybody knew about right after it happened. I mean, this is, we're still in the age of telephones by now, 1880s, right? They knew this happened. And even upper management trying to get in the building weren't being let by these mobs. And strikers actually started throwing rocks. So this whole peaceful thing, this peaceful notion, like Scott mentioned, was, was BS. They're throwing rocks. They're using weapons. They're, they're using violent force to try to make their point come across. So from the newspapers of the day, May 6th, this is obviously the day after May 5th. May 6th, it said the rioters learned at a late hour that two companies of the 1st Regiment had been sent by special train to reinforce the 4th Battalion. So they knew this was happening. They knew uh, the militia was there waiting for them and that a murderous reception would meet any who attempted to enter the Rolling Mill Company grounds. A meeting of Polish rioters was held Inflammatory speeches were made by socialists and others, and it was unanimously resolved to attack the troops in the morning at an early hour. The rioters around, with revolvers, clubs, and pieces of gas pipe, began to assemble near the Polish church. They started at 1,500 strong at about 7 o'clock and on the way to Bayview. As they advanced, they were reinforced by others until they numbered about 2,500 Men. By early morning, May 4th, the Koshuku militia had finally arrived by foot. Two jeers from the strikers, obviously calling them traitors and, and whatever else they called them. They were still having rocks thrown at them. Members actually fired shots in the air, accidentally hitting the mill, but causing strikers to let them proceed into the mill because everybody's a little bit scared. Uh, the strikers actually asked mill supervisors to start negotiations with their Chicago headquarters. But the answer was no. Feeling much pressure, using Chicago bombing as proof revolution was underway, Governor Rusk made the order. At this point, he felt no, he had no choice to say, quote, if the strikers try to enter the mill, shoot to kill, unquote. Major George Traumer ordered men to pick out one man and kill him when the order was given. So the Kashuku guards are actually Polish civilians. And this is why they would have, the strikers would have called them traitors. They were from the same community. If you got two Polish guys, one chose to riot, the other chose to be part of the, the defending guard. So you can see the, where the tensions are. The Milwaukee Sentinel states, quote, the strikers refused to get out of the path of the soldiers, and the latter were compelled to elbow their way through the mob in single file. The Kashuku guards began the last company to pass through the gate, fared the worst as a number of the Poles ran up to the soldiers and struck them from the rear, a shower of stones was also sent after the troops. Impulsively, five or six of the Koshukus turned and fired on the crowd, but their shots were high and hit nobody. This unauthorized firing scattered most of the strikers and seemed to temper hostilities at that at point. At least they got out of the way, as I said, so people could go in and out of the building. So there were shots fired on the 4th, right. right? but they didn't hit anybody, and uh, the crowd dispersed. So And, and at that night... The strikers actually spent night in a nearby open fields while the militia stayed in the Bayview Mill with posted soldiers. The soldiers shot at anything that moved at that point, and a Navy tugboat had br actually was coming by to bring in provisions. Now, the church that they started this their, their march from on the morning of the 5th is St. Stanislaus Church on 5th and Mitchell. It's still there, still there today. And Major Traumer later stated that he kept up on their progress and he had it on his best authority that the strikers were, quote, determined to clean out the militia and set fire to the mills, unquote. And that's just what the newspaper article that I had just read said, too, that they were going to take out the militia. Now, Tremor already had orders from Rusk 
uh, as Mickey said, that if they were to enter the mill to fire. Uh, this should not have been news to anybody as the day before, on May 4th, 1886, the Green Bay Press-Gazette says, quote, a mob of 3,000 infuriated Poles assembled at noon in the vicinity of the Bayview Rolling Mills and began riotous proceedings. Governor Resk has ordered out two companies of militia, and they are now marching toward the scene. The soldiers have orders to shoot to kill. So now word is out. Everybody knows all the events that have happened, and people are pissed. This is on May 4th, 200 miles away in Green Bay, and they knew that the shoot-to-kill order was out there. So you, you better believe the organizers knew that right. shoot-to-kill order was out there. Right. They knew, and they sent these people there like lambs to a slaughter. Yep. There's no doubt about it. If you don't believe that, I'm sorry. There's really nothing I can do, well, but that is, naive if, that is if you don't. true. Right. So Jerry Cooper goes on again, and he says, As soon as the marchers crossed the Milwaukee city limits into Bayview, Tremor, from inside the plant grounds, ordered them to stop and disperse. Apparently the strikers had no single leader and ignored the order. Then reported the Milwaukee Sentinel Major Tremor again warned the crowd to stop, but the mob ignored him and pressed ahead. Ignored, didn't hear, whatever. It... Even if they did hear, they weren't going to do what he was. Oh, he told us to stop. We're just going to stop then. We'll see you later. This was fun. You know, that wasn't going to happen. Right. And that's that's the thing. You know, when you when you read, uh, again, some of these writings today, here's Anna Pierce again, writing in, in, uh, in 2019. The protesters moved quickly through the streets and soon arrived at the rolling mill, which was still protected by the militia. The militia yelled to the protesters to turn back, but they did not seem to hear the militia's orders. Now, also uh, in an article by John Goethe, written a few years ago. John Goethe is a, a wonderful historian in, in Wisconsin. Uh, I read him very, very often. He might be our foremost historian uh, today. I've, I've met him, really like his work, but again, he's writing here uh, in an article in Wisconsin Life a few years ago. It says, at a distance of 200 yards, the marchers couldn't possibly have heard him above their own noise. When they continued to advance, the, the troops open fire but it's, again even if they heard this? them what they weren't gonna listen what is this this narrative of these guys not hearing so right. it, it, what if they did hear them again <laughs> oh like i said oh okay he told us to stop i guess we're done so see a, you later a line of hundreds of militia with guns pointed at you is not a that's not a sign right. saying to they stop. needed someone to tell them yeah. <laughs> like and again everybody knew the shoot to kill was out there right this, yeah. it, this the was paper reported it for God's sake. Two hundred miles away, yeah. the day before. Right. So this nonsense that this was uh, unprovoked shooting, uh, you know, they're carrying revolvers, clubs, and knives. And these strikers have been throwing rocks. I mean, you're not doing that because you just want to test your arm strength. You're trying to hurt someone. And eight police officers were firebombed the night before, right. just down the highway. Right. So this notion again that this was completely unprovoked. Um, well, people had already been know, shot this down is, in Chicago, too. So both sides have, have blood on their hands. We need to tell context here when we're telling this when we're telling this story. Right. Now, when the shooting started, a bunch of people dropped down. I, I don't know if they're told to do this, um, if Garaco told them this, but whenever, when, when the shooting started, a lot of people dr hit the ground right away to, to feign like they were shot, to feign like they were dead. I don't know if that's... Some kind of a tactic. So, and then when the shooting stopped, then obviously they jump up right away and run away. 
It's like when you see a bear. I guess, yeah. Along those lines, yeah, sure. But seven people didn't get up and run away. No. Right? Uh, seven people, like you said, lay dead, including a 12-year-old boy just wandering about, wondering what was happening, and a six-year-old retiree just getting water, and again, several others were injured. The boy was found with textbooks still under his arm, and the names of these victims, because these are the people we're talking about. These names are Frank Kunkel, Frank Nowarczyk, John Marsh, Robert Erdman, Johan Zaska, Martin Jankowicz, and Michael Rukowski. I may have butchered those, but... Just out of respect, those names need to be mentioned because those are the those are the victims of this whole thing. This is just for a little more context about these from uh, uh, an article dated May twelfth, eighteen eighty six. It goes over the names here, and it says Michael Rakowski, a laborer aged forty, shot through the breast and expired shortly afterward. He lived on Garden Street near the city limits. Is married with no children. Frank Kunkel, aged sixty nine, lived in a little house on South Bay. Was shot through the heart while feeding his chickens and getting water in his yard. And actually, the, the one more injured person, there was a man carrying an eight-hour flag, was shot through the jaw. And while he survived, he ended up living the rest of his life with a silver jaw. And he was from Seymour, Wisconsin. Right. So he, there was a lot of other injuries, too. These are the people that died, but right. there was a lot of people hurt. Johan Mosca, a laborer, 24 years old, shot through the stomach, the ball going straight clear through him. He died in great agony. At his house at 700 4th Avenue, he leaves a young wife and one child. Martin Jankoviak, a laborer, age 25, shot through the chest, the ball entering in front and passing out the rear. Robert Erdman, age 19, shot through the abdomen and cannot live. So obviously when this was written, he was still alive, but they knew he was going to die. Well, and that's the other thing. These are just the people that died basically immediately. A lot of other people ended up dying from their injuries down the road, too. Right. And Frank Nowatzik, age 13, a schoolboy who was shot sideways through the upper abdomen by a stray bullet. Textbook still under his arm, as I said. Now, there were actually two other bodies were found by a railroad tracks uh, during cleanup. I guess you will is this a cleanup? I guess it's a cleanup. I guess after the, the melee of what's going on, they found two more bodies by the railroad tracks, and they were never identified. No. They, they, they're we're told, I guess, they're Polish immigrants. I'm not sure how we know that since they haven't been identified. But So the number today of dead is set at seven. There's likely at least nine and probably more from people that died of complications afterward. Right. Um, and this the, the shooting didn't, the crowd dispersed, obviously, but it didn't immediately end anything yet. There were multiple other buildups throughout the city. There were more skirmishes throughout the city, but no more shots were fired. And, and there were a few strikers that kept marching, but nobody else joined because I think people finally got the hint. It's gone too far. And the eight-hour movement in Milwaukee, at least in the short term, was dead. It was a colossal failure with seven people no longer alive because of it in the short term. Including two that had nothing to do with it. I want to play here a, a YouTube clip by you know this this is these are the people that put on the commemoration every year which is a which is a which is a noble thing it should be remembered right because again the long-term effects are great and right. we're benefiting from that as employees today unfortunately and, blood had to spill but you know just like with any war people don't want to go to war but unfortunately sometimes it comes to that in order to get for for the right thing to come out. So she's th- this lady is uh, her name is Candace Owley. She's the chair of the event planning committee for the commemoration every year, 
and she's a, a retired president of the Wisconsin Federation of Nurses and Health Professionals. And she's talking here at the site of the Rolling Mills uh, massacre, and she's giving a little rundown of what happened. Uh, well, good afternoon. My name is Candace Owley. I'm the retired president of the Wisconsin Federation of Nurses and Health Professionals, but I'm also the coordinator of the Bayview Tragedy uh, annual remembrance and generally reenactment, although today we aren't able to do the reenactment. In the late 1800s, our country, like much of the world, was going through uh, industrialization. And the impact on the workers was, uh, was brutal. They had never-ending shifts. They had no safety rules. Uh, they had very low wages. And they began uprisings uh, toward the late 1800s. And that, that uprising was focused mostly around the issue of eight hours a day because they wanted to be able to have eight hours and then be able to go home and enjoy their families, enjoy their community, and of course, eight hours to sleep. So it became a movement called the eight hour a day movement. And it gained great uh, energy across the country and especially here in Wisconsin. And by 1886, the movement in Wisconsin had become very strong, strong enough that we had the, at the city level uh, some legislation passed. But one employer was holding out, and that was the Bayview Rolling Mills. Today we're in Bayview, Wisconsin, because that is the site of, of uh, a battle that took place, not really a battle, a massacre of workers that took place because it was a peaceful protest, a peaceful march to ask uh, the employer, Baby Rolling Mills, to uh, have an eight-hour day for those workers. And uh, sadly, the uh, governor of the time uh, was against this uh, march, said it was going to be violent, which it never was, and he sent the militia. And sadly, uh, we had to end the up was that uh, uh, nine people, six people that were were assassinated that day, uh, two were not even workers, but in this peaceful protest. So we gather uh, here today, not just to remember what happened in 1886, which is a very important thing to remember, but also to think about what are the struggles of today. Because we have many similar struggles, which is hard to believe after uh, over 100 years that we could have struggles for safe workplaces, uh, safe hours of work, uh, workplace safety issues in terms of, of uh, the equipment that we use. And it's, it's an interesting time for us here because for 34 years, the Wisconsin Labor History Society has done a reenactment and a remembrance of this event because it is the bloodiest labor massacre actually in Wisconsin history. So we decided to lift this up beginning 34 years ago because we thought it was so important. But we also tie it together with things that are happening right now in our community. And right today we are uh, in the middle, we hope maybe the middle, maybe towards the end, we don't know. So let me, let me just mention again something that she says because some of that obviously you have ambient noise in the background and it might have been hard to hear but she some of what she says is quote by 1886 the movement in wisconsin had become very strong strong enough that we had a, at the city level that we had some legislation passed but one employer was holding out that was the bayview rolling mill now today 
We're in Bayview, Wisconsin, because that is the site of a battle that took place. Not really a battle, a massacre of workers that took place, because it was a peaceful protest, a peaceful march to ask the employer, Bayview Rolling Mill, to have an eight-hour day for those workers. And sadly, the governor at the time, who was against this march, said it was going to be violent, which it never was, and sadly, he sent a militia, and what we ended up was seven people that were assassinated that day, two were not even workers, in this peaceful protest, yeah, unquote. That, that is so spun in one direction. There's just so much of that narrative that's not true. Well, and it's one side is evil and one side is good. And like you said, there's blood on the hands of everyone involved. Carrying revolvers and knives and clubs, throwing bricks, is not a peaceful protest. Forcing employers to stop working or you're going to burn their house down while you're holding a club or a knife is not a peaceful protest. And they're threatening their own. This is their own. They, they, they want support, but they're threatening to burn down their house to get it. And also, uh, the governor, which, you know, they, they, they spin this, this narrative that Governor Rusk uh, basically wanted to just squelch this. So he's just, a, a, you know, a capitalist that wanted to end this to end this protest. That's not true at all either. Governor Rusk was, was not really well-liked by business owners in Wisconsin because there were several times before this that they didn't think he acted quick enough. Which which goes to show that he was damned if he didn't, damned if he didn't, because what a, what a difficult position for to sure, be in of at course. this time. And, and he was from very... Humble beginning. Of course. He was not uh, an elitist in any means, and he was actually, he came up, you know, pretty high. He was actually bandied about for um, president running against... Um, Calvin Coolidge that he wound up not doing, but he was a very well-respected governor, very well-liked by a lot of people on both sides. Well, and even the employees, were they wanted him, as you said, to act sooner and bring out the militia and sure. start firing, and he just kept resisting because he didn't, he knew where this was going, but he didn't want it to go any sooner than it had to. So, you know, this is this is just what I'm talking about when I talk about the, the narrative that is being um, provided Spun. by people that talk about this today they have to do it so politically nothing so much of what she said there in that three minute thing was not correct it wasn't correct at all now again this article by anna pierce that i referenced there's no mention of haymarket square in there you know well i i shouldn't let let me let me rephrase that there is a mention of haymarket square and it's the very last sentence I just mentioned it in, in the article. It's it. the very last mention. It says, quote, the loss of life in the Bayview tragedy, along with the Haymarket bombing, where 11 people lost their lives on May 4th, 1886, were not in vain. She doesn't mention that those 11 people, three, uh, eight of them were police officers and that they were firebombed with dynamite by anarchists. Right? John Goethe, in the article that I read from him in Wisconsin Life, never mentions Haymarket. You don't think that had a lot to do with tensions going on? Oh, right. 12 hours before, the police officers, that's, eight of them were that's bombed? That's why Rusk called the militia in. Right. Because of what had happened. I mean, that's that's the sole, re- or maybe not the only reason, but a main reason why they were all brought in. Again, I, I like John Gerda a lot. I'm a big fan of his. But you can't talk about this one-sidedly like without that. mentioning Haymarket. You just can't. And, and I will say, in some of his longer-form writings, he does mention this. Um, so... You, you, in my opinion, you can't talk about Bayview without mentioning what happened 12 hours before. Not far away. You know? And, you know, this whole notion that they didn't hear the commands, they didn't hear them being told to stop. <laughs> well, you, the way you first said it, ignore is the correct word. 
whether they heard it or not, it didn't. It was a. It's a moot point. They were not going to listen, no matter what. That was the Milwaukee Sentinel saying they ignored it. That wasn't right. me. Well, that's, you know, the, so, that's the correct word, though. Sure, and that was written at the time. This is written today. Right. So they changed ignore to didn't hear. Right. I don't understand what difference that would have made. Right. They weren't going to listen to they're it, even if tr- they did hear. They're, they're trying to absolve culpability. Which, yeah, right. And, and I, I just, Both sides I just don't think that is good historian practice. I don't. No, because both sides need to be represented fairly and correctly. Having said all that, this commemoration that this woman is in charge of, every year more than 200 people gather at the Bayview Rolling Mills historical marker to commemorate it. It's located at the South Superior Street and East Russell Avenue on Jones Island of Milwaukee, sponsored by the Wisconsin Labor History Society and put on for free. That's You don't hear that very often. And the service typically held on the first Sunday in May, sometimes including a reenactment of the massacre, featuring larger-than-life puppets with pro-actors reading speeches, and there's also a wreath-laying music, remarks, and reading of victims' names. So, as you said, it's, it's, it's good that it's remembered. It's unfortunate that some of the people on the face of it are not giving all the facts. Well, even the the you said the law the larger than life puppets. It is it's kind of a cool event where they they have these ten foot puppets. They're ten feet tall, and they bring out. Um, I think it's Paul. You know, one is supposed to be Gratko, You know, and, he, and he's dressed like a, a a worker, and the other is supposed to be Governor Rusk, and he's he's like this you know this big tall evil looking guy in this black trench coat. Doesn't even look like Rusk at all. Like it's just, Darth Vader. You know, it's the the typical cartoon. Right. You know, white capitalist guy, and it's just it's it's kind of cartoonish it's a good event it should be remembered but again but even the puppet shows it's skewed in one direction obviously when grotko is is uh is speaking everybody's cheering and when when rusk is comes up to speech everybody's booing and it's just it's it's really is this what are we doing here it's unfair if nothing else right you know what are we doing here now after the tragedy many many employers in milwaukee and throughout the state changed to something like an eight-hour workday voluntarily you know, there were some compromises. Not a lot of them went to straight eight hours. Um, but, you know, kind of the ridiculous long days for nothing pay, um, that fight was on the radar now. So it was certainly in the public consciousness. Some of the immediate after effects, like the next day on May 6th, the labor group leaders met with Governor Rusk, and they actually asked him to pull back the militia, promising to police their own actions. But he refused until they disbanded and went back to work. Eventually, everyone went back to work about to work the 10-hour days, as we mentioned. On May 9th, Edward P. Ellis, owner of the Edward P. Ellis Reliance Steelworks, fired any remaining Polish workers. Uh, he claimed that they were too radical. Other companies followed suit, and Poles weren't able to find work for some time as a result of all this. So there's another sad story to go along with it. Both Robert Schilling and Paul Grotko were arrested and tried. Schilling was acquitted. He didn't really do anything wrong, you know, and, and when it when he realized that the, this might be bad, he pulled his guys out, and they basically left the strike. Uh, Grotko was actually sentenced to a year in jail, of which he served six weeks. So he didn't, you know, nothing really happened to them. He actually, Grotko actually mounted a, camp- a campaign for mayor of Milwaukee, um, two years later, he didn't win. So, you know, he eventually left town. He did remain prominent um, uh, at the national level for labor causes. But in 1929, Illinois Steel, who owned the Bayview Rolling Mill by then, uh, moved production to Chicago. They just wanted to go to bigger cities, and the mill closed for good. And it was torn down in the 1930s, and nothing of the mill remains today. But many of the company houses do. 
they're still being lived in. Some of the houses that some of the people died in are still there. So there's still remnants of that age, but the mill itself, there's nothing there. There's a historical marker there, and that's where the reenactment takes place every year. And then Edward Alice, who, who Mickey just mentioned before, who did agree to the eight-hour workday, he went on to found Alice Chalmers, who made mm-hmm. tractors and combines for decades. Sure, they're a and, big name. And Briggs and Stratton still uses their name. So, um, you know. He, he saw what was going on, and, and he made some changes to, to his business practices, and, and he turned out for the better for it. Now, the legacy of Bayview is where it should be today, and that's the ballot box. So beginning with the next wave of elections in 1888, Milwaukee voters pretty much cleaned out their city and county government, and they replaced them with sympathizers of the labor, of the labor movement, which were the socialists. So Milwaukee was the first city the first major city to elect a socialist mayor, Emile Seidel in 1910, who also became a VP candidate on the socialist ticket for president in 1912. They've had several more socialist mayors since. Uh, I think all the way up, I don't know what the number is, I think all the way up into the 60s, if I'm not mistaken, they had socialist mayors. They elected the first socialist congressman in the United States, also in 1910. That's Victor Berger. And a few groups formed around this time in order to fight for the rights of the workers. One was was called the Social Democracy of America, which ended up eventually being called Social Democratic Party of America. That was led by Victor Berger, as you just mentioned. Another party that was formed was a populist party formed with the help of Robert Schilling, as we've talked about quite a bit. And this is Fighting Bob. He helped to form the Progressive Party. All these were groups that were put in place to, to fight for the rights of the workers. And so it led to the rise of the La Follets, right? Obviously, Bob La Follette, who was governor, a U.S. senator, ran for president, actually was a Republican most of his career, but moved to a more populist persuasion and founded the Progressive Party, which many of these labor issues being part of his platform and calling for these reforms. He's known today as the father of American progressivism, and then his son Robert Jr. followed him. So, they, you know, they are... They even tried to get his wife to, to take right, office after their nephew, passed. too. You right. know? So, so La Follette, uh, Bob LaFollette is an interesting character. So he, he runs for office. Actually, he wins election uh, to Congress in Wisconsin in 1884 as a Republican. He's very familiar and friendly with William McKinley. He starts meeting some important people right. real fast and getting along with them. So about in 1890, obviously, we're in this kind of socialist uh, era, right? We're, we're four years now after the Bayview riots. He's soundly defeated for the Democrat. By a Democrat, right? right? So he kind of reinvents himself. He, he goes away from politics for a while. Well, I guess he never really goes away from politics. He just kind of reinvents uh, himself, and he, and he starts fine-tuning his focus and what he's going to fight for. He comes at you now with more of a kind of a, like a populist persuasion. He's, he's kind of moving. Um, fighting for the common man. Right. Really. So, right, fighting for the common man. And, you know, he actually starts traveling the state, advocating for the common man and kind of becomes more of what we know as today a progressive. Basically campaigning himself for, for other, because he ended, ended up running for U.S. Senate and even at some point for the president of the United States. So, he had, so he's, he had goals in mind. He's demanding steeper railroad taxes, which again is, is more of a kind of a nationalizing infrastructure, nationalizing railroads, which is a very socialistic thing. Direct primary elections, breakup of monopolies, preservation of state forests, protection of workers' rights, uh, defense of small farmers, regulating lobbying, and ending 
patronage politics. So he's becoming a progressive, right? Basically, and, and before are, there was such a thing as and, a progressive. And those are those last few things are really important. So in 1900, he runs for governor on this platform, and he's elected. And he's also reelected in 1902. 1904. Wisconsin becomes known at this time as a laboratory of democracy. As I mentioned before, he's changing. We things. start hearing this thing of the quote Wisconsin idea. He, he's he's a pioneer basically. He's trying to change these laws for the better and and just do things differently than have been done before. And some people loved it, and some people really really didn't. So in 1957, when asked to name five of the most illustrious senators in history, the Senate committee led by John F. Kennedy, you may be familiar with that name, included Republican-turned-progressive Robert La Follette of Wisconsin. In 1982, a survey asking historians to rank the, quote, 10 greatest senators in nation's history, unquote, based on accomplishments in office and long-range impact on American history, placed La Follette first, tied with Henry Clay of Kentucky. So whether people agreed with him or not or, and, and liked his methods, he is, as we've said, he was a pioneer and he he made a difference, and and we we all take it for granted, but it it helped us be able to enjoy our jobs a little more today. You know, and and it's a credit to him. Again, this guy this guy, most of his political career, he was a Republican fighting for conservative issues, right. and and that's ironic. And he was able to not that he didn't leave his Republican base. He called himself a Republican progressive, not that he didn't leave those values. He didn't change his values. But he learned that he, you know, he, he understood he had constituents, right? And that maybe what was good for him wasn't necessarily good for everybody else. He was seeing other people's points of view, even though he had nothing to do with those people. And that's, that's admirable and commendable. So, You know, the, the LaFollettes are precursors to people like Bernie Sanders. And Bernie Sanders actually mentions the LaFollettes still today as being kind of, you know, uh, influential on him. And now the word socialism, obviously, is a, ro- is a lightning rod to people. And people start getting bent out of shape about it, and deservedly so sometimes, in my opinion. No, there's there's a bad track record when you look at the big picture, but those are the ones that are looking out for the working man historically, right? right? Well, you think of the USSR a lot of times. Well, sure. If you get further left than that in communism, now it's, it's when, you know, when socialists start wanting to take over everything, in my opinion, they want to nationalize infrastructure and they want to nationalize health care and they want to put everything under the big umbrella of government. You know, that's when that's when you start running into problems because that doesn't work. It doesn't work anywhere. But, you know, their platform of fighting for the working man has worked. And if you, you know, if you look at what was deemed as radical in 1886 compared to what we are today, we're pretty radical. Well, on the parties, the parties looked a lot different back then. The, the Republicans and the Democrats weren't so as dominant. There were other parties that had an influence and they just... They weren't so cut and dry, black and white as they sure. are now. There wasn't necessarily civil war going on as we see it today. Sure, but you know, so there's a reason that Milwaukee has that track record of being governed by socialists throughout their history. It's because of these workers' rights issue. Now, you can make your own decisions about how this has impacted Milwaukee politics today. We can look at Milwaukee and make our own decisions about what has come of that, uh, you know. You got to take the good with the bad, I guess. So again, it goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning, that this is not a 
black and white, left, right issue. They're not the same as they were in 1886 and 1900. It's okay to be nuanced a little bit. It's okay to be a Democrat and believe in maybe some more conservative values. It's okay to be a conservative and maybe believe a little more democratic or socialistic values. They should be trying to represent the whole. They should all be trying to have a common goal. And yeah, the the right side goes at it from one way, the left side goes at it another way, but ultimately the goal should be the same. And it shouldn't be like, well, my party believes this, so I have to believe it. What what the hell? Then, Then you're not an individual. Again, politics, it's okay to be nuanced. It's okay if you're a Democrat to believe that maybe some of these union antics weren't so nonviolent. It's okay if you're a conservative to believe that maybe the militia had a bit of a trigger finger when they shouldn't have. It's okay to say these things, but people feel they can't. If you don't toe the line, you're going to be drawn and quartered. And it's it's getting a bit ridiculous. It's Again, going this, over the top. This, you know, this stuff telling history without full context, I mean, it's quite the grift. You know, and it happens in our society constantly and in virtually uh, every subject. This was a movement that tried everything they could for two years. It was actually longer than that, but the organized effort lasted two years with no results. So they chose violence, and it ultimately worked, right? Except it wasn't Robert Schilling or Paul Grotko taking the bullets. It was a 20-year-old unskilled laborer. It was a 13-year-old kid. Well, like any war, the, the people in charge are sending out, you know, innocent people that have to fight. Their, they're not the ones fighting and, and risking their blood and all that stuff. But unfortunately, this is how humans work. At some point, you know, you can try to be peaceful, but sometimes war has to happen because people just of course. Are, are locked-minded and not willing to see any point of view but their own. We know, as evidenced by headlines in newspapers throughout the state the day before the killing that they knew there was a shoot-to-kill order. And Paul Gratku knew it, and he sent those guys out there to be shot. He knew he wasn't going to take the bullet. He knew it was going to be some 69-year-old retiree feeding chickens in his own backyard. And these captains and these, these colonels and all these, you know, even with our national military, they're, they're presented as heroes, but they're not risking their own lives. That's the sad part of it all. It's okay to... to to give context when we're talking about history, but people just don't want to admit it. Right. They chose violence after two years of not choosing violence, and it worked. And it ultimately led to changes, even at the federal level, of what we as American workers benefit from today. Much of that legislation adopted by many other states started right here. And, and even the concept of unions that unfortunately have gone by the wayside a little bit in the last few years, but they're there they're to protect, and, and they're not flawless, but they're there to protect the, the common man, that the, the regular workers. And it's a good concept if it's not abused and, and taken too far. And that's all because of this, that they exist. Right. When you go to work this week and you work your eight-hour shift, you fill out your time card or you put your vacation request in or you have that added money to your check for overtime, or you call in sick and still get paid, maybe take a moment and thank a Wisconsinite. Because the blood that watered the seeds for that movement was shed right here. Amen, brother. <laughs>